Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. This week's Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Well, hello everyone, nice to see you here. Uh, We're going to talk about prophecy today. That's a fun topic, isn't it? In fact, when was the last time you talked about prophecy or even had a prophecy session at your church, I wonder. Or maybe had someone claim to be a prophet, someone stand up in your church and say, thus says the Lord and give God's message. Well, I'm guessing not recently. I'm guessing it's not something that you do all that often in your church or even talk about all that often in church. Which is strange when you think about it because we're Bible believers, we love the Bible. And in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 14... It says that prophecy is something we should be really concerned about. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1, which should come up on the screen in just a second, says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the things or the gifts of the Spirit, especially that you may prophesy. And the rest of that long chapter of 1 Corinthians 14 is all about how we should do prophecy in church, how prophecy should be organised, how fantastic prophecy is, how prophecy is a thing that if you're going to do anything in church, strive to do prophecy. So how come if prophecy is kind of held out as this kind of ideal, really important, great thing, 
how come we don't ever talk about prophecy very much, do we? Or even perhaps do it? Why not, I wonder? Well, partly I think it's because over the past, I don't know, half century or so, prophecy's got a bit of a bad name. Um, particularly, there have been two movements, two prophetic movements, two forms of prophecy that are the most common ones that we think about as Christians that we might not necessarily want to associate ourselves with. The first one is the end times prophecy movement. Uh, this sees prophecy, very popular among evangelical Christians, especially in the United States, this sees prophecy as being about predicting world events that are about to take place. Digging through the Bible, finding out something it prophesies and predicts, and saying, ha-ha, the invasion of Israel into Palestine, 1947, the Bible is coming true. Now, those of you who are as old as me, in other words, nobody, might remember the introduction of bank card into Australia. Now, bank card, um, where's bank card? It's up there somewhere. <laughs> it's the Bible talks. There it is. It's bank card. Bank card was the very first plastic credit card ever to be introduced into Australia, 1974. Very exciting. Everyone was very keen to run out and get bank card. But you can immediately see the problem, can't you, when you look at bank card. Are they three kind of nested bees on the bank card? Or are they three sixes? <laughs> I kid you not. Many Christians were very concerned about the introduction of bank card because they read Revelation 13, 17 and 18, which says that no one will be able to buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast and the number of its name is 666. So Revelation was talking about bank card. And if you were going to get involved in the work of the beast, well, get your bank card. Now, if that seems a fairly kind of bad and wacky kind of way to read the Bible, it's because it is. It's a very bad and wacky way to read the Bible. And end times prophecy kind of prophecy is often like that. It's often trying to draw these tenuous links between biblical teaching and events today. So probably no wonder we don't feel like being involved in that kind of prophecy. But the other kind of prophecy that's been very prominent over the last four or five decades, perhaps closer to home for many of us here, is, called, is what I might call predictive prophecy. That's when you get a special word from God that God delivers to you directly that concerns people's lives and the lives of your church. This is the kind of prophecy where someone might stand up in church and says, thus says the Lord, and deliver a message directly to the church, or they may come to you personally and tell you something that God has revealed to them about you and your life and what's coming up for you and what you should do. I've been in charismatic and Pentecostal church gatherings. I was involved in that kind of churches when I was younger where this sort of thing happened quite frequently. Often it was a fairly vague or general promise of God blessing or comforting us. But the aim was to go further than that. The aim was to know what God had for you and your future. In the 1980s and 1990s, these three men became the leaders of a very famous group of prophets called the Kansas City Prophets. You can't see their names very well. Paul Kane, Bob Jones and John Paul Jackson. These men seemed at times to have quite an extraordinary ability to know what was happening in people's lives and to try and predict what was going to happen. Uh, their record on prediction was a bit hit and miss though. Uh, sometimes they seemed to get it right, sort of. Other times they got it wildly wrong, such as when they predicted a revival to break out across the United Kingdom in October 1990. But that time came and went, no revival. So if this kind of thing is prophecy, that is predicting what will happen and having direct words from God about your life, this also seems a bit subjective or unreliable 
or to use a theological term, dodgy, uh, for <laughs> the way we might read the Bible and apply it. So if that's what prophecy is, maybe it's not, a, not that strange that we don't seem that keen on it in our churches. And what's more, as we read our Bibles, we see that most of the prophets seem way beyond the likes of us. We've been looking at Isaiah this term, haven't we? We see someone like Isaiah and he's kind of commissioning. We see this dramatic word that comes to him. Uh, he's directly given words to say. He stands up and declares God's word to the people. And the vast majority of prophecy in the Bible is like Isaiah's, when they have a direct word from God to deliver. And we look at that majestic kind of prophetic ministry and we say, geez, that's, that's not for the likes of me. So what do we make of prophecy? 1 Corinthians 14 says that if we love other people, we'll seek after it and desire it. So what is it really and how might we do it today? Well, simple question, right? And we have about 35 minutes. So I'm going to move fairly quickly and I'm going to skim over some things that I wish I had time to dwell on in more detail. And no doubt it will raise all kinds of questions that you can come back with at some point. But let's get started by digging back to the beginnings of prophecy. Because like most things in the Bible, prophecy has a story to it. It starts way back in the Old Testament, and things, then things happen as the Bible story unfolds. Let's go all the way back to Moses. Because Moses is the first and greatest prophet in the Bible. And if we're going to understand Old Testament prophecy, let's start with him. Uh, and let's turn in your Bibles, if you've got your Bibles there, to Deuteronomy 18. This is the passage that most of you, I think, looked at today in Bible study. Is that correct? You looked at Deuteronomy 18? So you've had a look at this passage already. And in this passage, Moses, very conveniently for us, describes what a prophet is and what a prophet does as he describes the kind of prophet that God is going to raise up next after him. And there are kind of five characteristics, we could say, of a classic Old Testament prophet that come out in this passage. Let's see what they are. Let's start from verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, on the day of assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. You see in these few little verses the first two key characteristics of all Old Testament prophets. The first is that they are a covenant mediator. The prophet stands between God and the people as part of the relationship that God establishes with his people Israel. He's not come some sort of random fortune teller or seer of the future. He's a key figure in the relationship between God and his people. And his role arises from God gathering his people around himself, saving his people, and then speaking with them. But because direct contact, ongoing direct contact with God and his word was too much for the people, God appoints a mediator, a go-between, a messenger. And that's essentially what a prophet is, a mediator of the covenant between God and his people. And his special job, secondly, is to bring a direct message to the people from God. I will put my words in his mouth, it says in verse 18, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And this is the prophet's basic task. God gives him a message. His job 
is to deliver that message to the people. Not a message of his own devising. Sorry, I'm just putting this in my pocket so I don't stand on the thing anymore. Um, but a message that only God could have told him. It's not a message he could have known in any other way. It's a message God has revealed to him as he puts his words in his mouth. So those are the first two characteristics of an Old Testament prophet like Moses. Covenant mediator and a direct message from God to deliver to the people. The third characteristic actually isn't in Deuteronomy 18, but it was in the other passage we looked at uh, in your Bible study this morning in Numbers 11. In Numbers 11, Moses also we also hear, learn some more about prophecy. Um, Moses goes up and tells the people the words of the Lord. He's doing what prophets do. But then Moses gathered 70 men of the elders of the people, placed them around the tent. That's the tent of meeting. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. When the, when the Holy Spirit comes to descend on you or sometimes clothe you, as it says in the Old Testament, when it rushes upon you, what you do is prophesy. It happens time and time again in the Old Testament. In fact, some of the elders of Israel were in the camp and not with Moses around the tent, and they started prophesying. And Joshua gets very concerned about this, and he comes and says, Moses, hey, these guys are prophesying in the camp. Should I stop them? And then Moses says these last couple of lines, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. When the spirit comes upon you in the Old Testament, you prophesy. By the power and work of the spirit, the prophet knows what God himself wants to say and conveys it to the people. As it says in, uh, in 2 Peter in the New Testament, no prophet ever spoke on his own initiative or by his own will, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's in 2 Peter 1.21. So an Old Testament prophet, like Moses, is a covenant mediator who brings a direct message from God under the power of the Spirit. And he delivers it to the people in their circumstances and asks for a response. You see that in verse 19. We're back in Deuteronomy 18. You see that in verse 19. Whoever, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. When the prophet brings a message, it needs to be listened to. You need to respond to it because he's bringing God's message to you. And God will hold you accountable if you don't listen and respond appropriately to that message. Which is a very serious thing when you think about it. Serious for the prophet in speaking a word. Very serious for the people in actually listening to and responding to that word. And it presents a serious temptation to misuse or abuse that office or that role to get what you want. And that's why you need to look out for false or misleading prophets. That's what the remaining verses of this passage talk about in verse 20. But if a prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, well, how do I know? How may we know that the word that the Lord has not spoken? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And here's where we get to the fifth and final characteristic of what a prophet is and who a prophet does. Fourthly, he requires a response, but he always says something about what's going to happen. 
I mean, that's how you can tell whether he's a true prophet or not, whether the thing he says comes true. Now, this is not our kind of cliched view about prophecy, that prophecy is basically about predicting the future, kind of like Nostradamus or like fortune telling. What the prophet does is says, here's God's message for you. You need to respond to this. Now, let me tell you what will happen if you do or don't respond to God's message. The prophet almost always in the Old Testament speaks about the future. But almost always it's about what God will do in the future depending on what his people do, whether they obey or disobey, or what he will do in response to his people's actions. Moses does this in just the following few chapters in Deuteronomy. He talks about what will happen to Israel if they obey God, blessings. If they disobey God, curses and destruction. So, let's summarise. What does a prophet do in the Old Testament like Moses? He's a covenant mediator, stands between God and the people. He brings a direct message to them straight from God. It's all done in the power of the Spirit. It requires a response because it speaks to you in your situation, right where you are now. It requires you to listen and respond. And it says something about what God will do in the future, usually in response to your actions and your disobedience or otherwise. And this is the pattern of all Old Testament prophecy. Nearly always, this is what happens. This is what a prophet, prophet does. This is the nature of his task. But although this was kind of the shape of nearly all Old Testament prophecy, it doesn't mean that all Old Testament prophecy was the same because the prophets were all very different guys and did very different things within this basic pattern. They are a very mixed bunch. This is what Hebrews 1 reminds us of. Remember, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers via the prophets. And that's very true. If you look through the Old Testament, the prophets are by no means all the same. You have some of them, like Moses and Elijah and Elisha, who did amazing, miraculous, mighty works. But only really those three did amazing, miraculous works. You have Samuel, who was kind of like the leader of God's people. He was a very central figure in the whole politics of Israel, virtually the leader of Israel until he anointed Saul king. But then later, as the kind of history of Israel goes along, as Israel sort of goes downhill in its relationship to God and obedience to God, the prophets change as well. They often become marginal and persecuted figures within Israel. They're often... Um, bringing a message of judgment rather than a message of, of response. In fact, as we come to Isaiah, and we've been studying Isaiah this term, you kind of see that. Isaiah mostly fits our pattern. He's appointed by God. He's given a word directly to say to the people. Doesn't say much about the spirit in Isaiah or Isaiah having the spirit. And interestingly, the response that Isaiah keeps calling for is not so much repent, because he keeps saying it's almost too late for you guys to repent. Your ongoing disobedience is going to bring judgment on you. And Isaiah frequently, as you've seen in the last several weeks here at CBS, speaks of the judgment God is going to bring on Israel, on Judah, and on the nations around. And if anything, if the response is there, the response is for God's faithful remnant to wait for what God will do after the judgment, for the redemption and salvation and comfort he'll bring to his people after he's poured out his anger on them. Now, I think that's going to be kind of the focus of the second half of this term as we move into Isaiah 40 and following. But for Isaiah, the future he holds out, as he speaks about a future, is of inevitable judgment on God's people 
but of some restoration and redemption and new life and new creation that lies on the other side of that judgment. In fact, this is increasingly the case of Old Testament prophecy. As Israel declines and its fortunes decline, the focus of the prophets is on the judgment of Israel because of its sin and on the promise to come. That God is not only going to judge you, he's going to do something extraordinary on the other side of that. He's going to redeem and restore. He's going to make Jerusalem once again the center of the world where people come to know God and hear him. He's going to bring about a new covenant in which he'll pour out his spirit on his people to bring them to new life. He's going to put his word in their mouths. He's going to send his servant who will decisively and wonderfully redeem his people and bring their salvation. And you'll see more of all of this in the weeks to come in Isaiah. So in all of this, we've kind of seen a kind of picture of what Old Testament prophecy is. Even though it changes a bit in different points in Israel's history. There's the prophet who stands between God and the people, who is filled with the Spirit, delivers a direct message from God to the people, calling on them to respond in their current circumstances and promising some future for them that God will bring. And then, of course, Jesus comes the one that the, prophet looked, the prophets looked forward to. Or rather, God himself comes to his people in the person of his son in the fulfilment of all those prophecies and promises. But before we get to the fulfilment of prophecy in the New Testament, I believe it's customary at, at uh, the Bible Talks, I've got to stop at some point and give you a question to discuss among yourselves. So I'd like you to talk about this question. It's an interesting question. Expressing your answer as a percentage, what chance do you think you'd have of listening all the way through a CBS talk without a break to discuss a question? Talk about that amongst yourselves. You can come back together now. That's enough fun and games. All right, let's keep going. See, this is why I didn't want to have a break to get you to discuss something among yourselves. It's not time. Anyone have a 100% chance that they'd get through it? Anyone have 10% chance they'd get through it? Few. Yes, good. Thanks, Ollie. Very good. Well, let's come to the fulfilment of prophecy. Because all the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament, of course, come to their fulfilment in Jesus Christ. And it's the same with prophecy. The New Testament describes Jesus not so much as the last and greatest of the prophets. See, Ollie can't even make it through the second half. That's right. (laughs) It's not so much that Jesus is the last and greatest of the prophets. If anything, that honour goes to John the Baptist, which we could talk about. Jesus comes as the fulfilment of prophecy. He's far more than a prophet. He's the reality, the fulfilment that all the prophets prophesied about and looked forward to it. And as we'll see, the fact that Jesus fulfills all the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament transforms New Testament prophecy. You see, there were three great kind of covenant mediating figures in the Old Testament. One is a prophet, covenant mediator, but there were two others. There's the priest and the king. And Jesus kind of fulfills all of these roles and kind of makes the Old Testament form of them obsolete. We don't really have Old Testament style prophets anymore. We don't have Old Testament priests anymore. And we don't have Old Testament kings anymore because Jesus is the one great word priest and king who fulfills all those expectations. I mean, this is what Hebrews says right throughout its, uh, its chapters, but especially in these opening verses. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in the final stage of history, 
He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. We used to have prophets in lots of different ways. Now we have a word from the Son, God's very nature imprinted on him, revealing God himself to us in his own person. We used to have priests. Now we've got a purification for sins once for all time. We used to have kings. Now we've got the majesty ruling on high, the king of the universe, the final and wonderful king of God's kingdom. Jesus brings to fulfillment and completion all these Old Testament figures and characters and themes. And you see it in, in regard to prophecy very quickly. Covenant mediator, Jesus is the one final mediator of relationship with God and God's word. We don't need prophetic mediators to stand between us and God now because we have God's very word in the person of his son. There's only one mediator between God and man, God's son, Jesus Christ. And he brings God's message direct to us. He not only brings God's very words, that is all the words that God gave him to speak, as it says in John's Gospel, but he himself is the very word of God, the great message that God sends to the world in these last days. He is the word made flesh, the last great communication of God to us in these last days. In a sense, he is the prophecy made flesh, the direct word of God to us. He does this, of course, in the filling of the Spirit. All through the Gospels, this is emphasised, especially in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is the Spirit-filled man who comes to do God's work. More than that, of course, he also fulfils that other ancient prophecy that God's Spirit would be poured out on his people. Jesus is the Spirit-filled Son of God who pours out the Spirit on all his people. And like all prophets, in a sense, or like all prophecy, he calls for a response. He calls the whole world to listen, to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he explains the future to us. In fact, Jesus not only promises and tells us what the future will be, Jesus is the future. He has sat down in glory at God's right hand, having died and risen from the dead. He is the one that God has appointed to judge the living and the dead at the time of his choosing. He's the one who will bring in the new creation in which we all dwell with God for all time. Jesus is the future. And so with the coming of Jesus, prophecy as an office, as an, as an activity, is fulfilled, just like all the Old Testament figures and themes, and it's transformed. And this means that whatever form prophecy might take in the New Testament, one thing is certain, it won't be the same as Old Testament prophecy because of Jesus. In fact, it will be all about Jesus because he is the great prophecy and the fulfilment of all prophetic messages. And this is what it in fact says in the New Testament in Revelation 19. It's a very curious verse, this one. Towards the end of John's revelation, so many prophetic kind of messages coming to John about the nature of of the world and what's really going on. And he falls down at the angel's feet, who's been speaking to him. But the angel says, said to him, you mustn't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
the angelic messenger who's revealing these things to John, he's only interested in one thing. He's only interested in Jesus. He's just a messenger. He's one who's prophesying about, speaking about Jesus. Jesus is the one. He's the heart and spirit of New Testament prophecy because he's the great final prophecy of God to the world. And so when we come to consider what prophecy is like in these last days, what Christian prophecy might be, we have to do it from the standpoint that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament prophetic office and activity. And now prophecy through him looks quite different in this New Testament era. Because through Jesus, prophecy now spreads to all of God's people. Now you looked at Acts as well this morning in your Bible studies, is that right? Acts chapter 2. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2. It's a very important passage. You know the scenario there, of course, when the risen Messiah, Jesus, pours out the Spirit on his disciples. They start to speak in tongues. True, they speak in other languages. What are they speaking in Acts chapter 2? They're declaring, it says in verse 11, the mighty works of God. And when Peter explains why they are doing this and what, in fact, is going on, the crowd is very bemused, and Peter explains... Let me tell you what you're seeing and hearing. You're seeing what Joel prophesied. In the last days, Peter says, it shall be, he's quoting Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Because remember, that's what happens when God pours his spirit into people. They prophesy in the Old Testament. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. It's all coming true, says Peter. The Old Testament prophecy of the spirit indwelling all of God's people. Moses' wish is coming true. Would that all God's people had the spirit that they could prophesy. It's all happening in front of you, Peter says. Now God's people, all God's people, doesn't matter their status or their nature, doesn't matter how humble or high they might be, doesn't matter if they're men or women, young or old, female servants, male servants. Just as the Old Testament said, they're all prophesying under the influence of the Spirit. In the New Covenant, there's this great democratizing of the Spirit of God and of the prophecy that the Spirit of God enables. It's not a preserve of just a few, as it was in the Old Testament, those prophets that God sent to his people. Now the privilege is for all God's people no matter their age or status or how humble they might be. This outpouring, this last day's outpouring of God's spirit has now happened, says Peter, because Jesus has risen to be the Christ. And so the opportunity to be filled with the spirit, to have your sins forgiven, and to speak and declare the word of God to others, this is now available to all of God's new covenant people. And this brings us all the way back to 1 Corinthians, where we started a few minutes ago. Because it's really in 1 Corinthians, in, in that letter, that Paul teases out what this kind of new covenant, spirit-filled speech is like. Before we get to chapter 14, though, I do want to pause for just a minute in chapter 2. And this will be our second last passage. This is the passage that uh, was read just earlier at the beginning of our talk. Because 1 Corinthians 14 is not the first time in 1 Corinthians that Paul talks about the spirit and the spirit-filled speech of Christians. Here in chapter 2, 
It's a very important passage, I think, for understanding the nature of spirit-filled speech and prophecy, even though it doesn't mention the word prophecy at all. Up to this point, as you know, in 1 Corinthians, when did we do 1 Corinthians here at Bible study? It wasn't that long ago, was it? This last term. So you know all about 1 Corinthians. You've seen this passage recently. You'll know that in chapter 1, Paul's been preaching on the gospel of the crucified Christ. The message that the world doesn't really get, but the message that really is the wisdom of God to bring righteousness and sanctification to his people. And he's talking about how that's what he came to Corinth and that's what I do, he says. I just preach this. But then in verse 6, he shifts from talking about what, what he himself does and he starts talking about we. Yet among the, uh, the mature, he says, we do not impart wisdom. We do impart wisdom. It's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which decreed, God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for who knows a person's thoughts, except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God, except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God, and we impart this, impart's a kind of fancy word, it's in the original here, it's just the word speak. We speak this, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person doesn't accept this, because they the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them, because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What do you notice in that passage? There's a message here. There's a secret wisdom that can only be known if God reveals it to someone by the Spirit. In context, it's clearly the message about Jesus that he's just been talking about, the message of the cross, the message that brings to people a whole new wisdom, a wisdom of salvation and sanctification and righteousness. And look what else he says. He says those who receive and understand this message from God by the Spirit also speak it by the same Spirit. In verse 13, we speak or impart this wisdom in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And there are different responses to this word that comes. Some people, the natural person, doesn't accept it. He can't understand it. It's folly to him. The spiritual person, on the other hand, does accept and understand and discern what's being said and is able to make judgments about all things. If this all sounds very like the kind of prophecy we've been exploring so far, it's because it does. What's happening here? People are receiving a message from God that they otherwise couldn't possibly understand or know. It all happens by the Spirit coming on them. And by that same Spirit, they then speak and impart that secret wisdom that they've received from God to other people. It sounds very like prophecy. 
Curious question, of course, is who is the we in this little passage? Is it possibly the other apostles? Paul broadens it out. He's talking about himself in the previous verses, and he's talking about himself in the following verses. In these verses, he kind of broadens it out and just talks about us. Could be the other apostles. Could potentially be any Christian who's received the Spirit, come to understand what the gospel means by the Spirit, and communicates that to other people. Who is it really in this passage? Well, Paul doesn't make it clear. It's not really definitive. He just puts it out there. I think what he's doing is laying the groundwork here for what he will say very explicitly later in the book, in chapter 14. He's explaining what happens when the Spirit comes upon you. You can only understand the Gospel, the secret wisdom of God, by the Spirit. And that same Spirit enables you to speak it to other people. He's setting up what he's going to say very explicitly in chapters 12 to 14 where he exhorts the, Christian, the Corinthians to stop being so spiritually immature and selfish and self-centred and instead to be truly spiritual people who love other people and seek truly spiritual things. He wants the Corinthians to be people who in love seek the benefit of others, not themselves, and who by the Holy Spirit testify that Jesus is Lord and by that same Holy Spirit speak that word to others for their building and benefit and edification. He wants them, in other words, to prophesy. And that brings us all the way back to 1 Corinthians 14, where we started. Pursue love, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, it says. I've substituted things there because the word gifts isn't in the original text of 1 Corinthians 14. It just says spiritual stuff, spiritual things, possibly spiritual people. Earnestly desire the spiritual stuff, the spiritual things, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, because no one understands him. He utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Prophecy in this chapter is very like the prophecy we've been seeing all through the Bible so far. It's a spirit-enabled word that enables someone to know something they otherwise could not have known and convey it to others so that they might respond to God in the circumstances they're in. Like all New Testament prophecy, it's going to be focused on Jesus, on the great final word of God that God sends to his people, the word of the cross that Paul's been talking about all through Corinthians, the word that can only come to be understood and grasped and known if God's spirit opens your eyes to see it. The word that they come to know by the Spirit is his final revelation, Jesus Christ himself. And that can only be known in the Spirit. And like all prophecy, on the basis of this word, it directs us to what God has said and calls on us to respond, to respond to Jesus Christ. To be built up, to be encouraged, to keep going in the Christian life in some way. And like all prophecy, it also speaks of the future. The future which is Jesus Christ and his kingdom and the consequences of living that way, which will either be uh, joy and life in his kingdom or rebellion against him and his kingdom. And it has to do with the circumstances we're in now. It's a word that comes to the present and deals with you and asks you to respond to what God is doing here and now and calls on a response from you. In other words, the prophecy of 1 Corinthians 14, I think, is like the prophecy of the Bible generally, but transformed completely by the coming of Jesus. 
great final word of God. So how can we seek prophecy today? Well, we've got to first clarify in our minds what prophecy isn't, and I hope we've kind of done that so far. Prophecy is not about world current events. It's about the world event. It's about Jesus Christ, his coming, his death, his resurrection, and his coming again. It's not predictive about specific events in the life of your church or the life that you're living and the particular choices you're going to make in terms of which car you buy or what particular choice you might make. It's not like a Christian version of fortune telling. And it's not necessarily ecstatic or mystical. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 14, the prophet speaks an intelligible word and it's entirely within his own control. He can stop and he can start. He can keep his word to himself or he can share it. It's not something that just sort of comes and rushes upon you in an ecstatic moment, in 1 Corinthians 14 anyway. What is prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14? Let's summarise. It brings the gospel of Jesus and it applies it to your context and your situation now and so provides edification and exhortation and encouragement to you to trust and obey Jesus as you look forward to the future of his kingdom. That's what prophecy is. It fits with a pattern of, of Old Testament prophecy, but transformed by the coming and fulfillment of Jesus. Practically speaking, what might it look like in our churches and in our lives? Well, I think it looks like many different things. I think that a preacher does prophesying when, by the Spirit, he brings the otherwise unknowable word of Jesus to the congregation, and especially as he applies that word to the lives and circumstances of people in their particular context today. I think much of what we call application in sermons is a kind of prophecy, a bringing of the word of Christ particularly to your context and urging and encouraging and exhorting you to live it out where you are. But if that's kind of the thing that prophecy is in sermons, it can also happen after sermons as well, of course, can't it? It could happen as a congregation member pops up and speaks about how that word that he's heard from the Bible bears on his or her life and what that might look like in the lives of the congregation. And what happen over coffee afterwards is you talk with one another and say, what does the word we've heard, what does it mean to us in our context? What does it mean for you? And what does it mean for me and how might we respond? As we bring the insights that God gives us into the application of his word to each other, we're doing what 1 Corinthians 14 encourages us to do, contextually bringing the word of God, the gospel word of God, to the situations we're in and exhorting each other to follow it. And that means it could happen as well in one-to-one -one meetings, in small groups, in chats over coffee. It can happen wherever the spirit of God enables you to under, un, understand some aspect of the gospel word of God and bring its application into the lives of the people around you where you share that with others for their edification and encouragement. Now, does that seem perhaps not supernatural and kind of miraculous enough for you to be prophecy? Well, I don't think if you think that you've understood what the gospel of Jesus is. It's the most extraordinary supernatural and spiritual thing that has ever happened. It's a spiritual message that the wisdom of this world cannot comprehend. And for you to comprehend it and understand it and speak it to somebody else and apply it to someone else's life, that's an extraordinary work of God's spirit in you and your heart. Does that mean any Christian can do it? Yes, that's why Paul urges them all to seek it and to desire it. 
He says it's the ideal spiritual practice that edifies the church, that everybody in the church could come to church potentially to do, or could do in their lives outside of the church gathering as well. Does every Christian do it? Well, no, that's why he's urging them to seek it and desire it. It's not something that they've all come to. In fact, the whole point of Corinthians is that the Corinthian church is immature, self-centered, a bit brattish and teenagerish, and hasn't realized that spiritual maturity is about speaking the word of God to other people for their growth. But it's what I want to urge you to do, both here at CBS and in your churches. Make love your goal, seek love of other people, not yourself. And if you want to love other people, the ideal way to do that in the spirit is to prophesy. It's to bring the testimony of Jesus to other people in their particular context and to urge and encourage and exhort them to listen and respond to the message of Jesus as we wait for the great future that Jesus has in store for us. Because Jesus is the great word of God and he is our future. Well, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great and final word that comes to us through the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that he is your prophecy made flesh in the world, your great word that brings us your word, that teaches us, that exhorts us, that tells us the truth about everything and that urges us to trust and obey him and you as we wait for his kingdom. We pray we would do that, Lord, and that we take up the enormous privilege it is to be able to speak that word to others in the power of your spirit. Help us to seek that in love, Father, and to desire that gift and to exercise it in any way we can in the different contexts of our life. And we thank you for teaching us about this, Father, in your word, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.